When I was in college, I went to a Christian university that was in Chicago called North Park University. And at the university, uh, if you've ever been to a Christian college or maybe you know CBC, one of the things that's common is they will have chapel services that happen during the week that you can attend and uh, it's put on there for the services. And that was one of the reasons I went to a university that was a Christian school. I wanted, uh, coming from public school, to be able to then go and be at a school where there was chapels that I could attend and then there would be evening college services that would happen. One particular chapel I went to, I remember walking to my seat and sitting down and there was a little piece of paper and, and a pen on everybody's chair. And uh, the, the person speaking proceeded to talk about that they were doing this art project that they wanted to have um, at the church or at, at the chapel service. Uh, the university ministries were putting this on. And so everybody was given this piece of paper and what they wanted you to do was write down the names of Jesus. Write down every single name you can and then what they were going to do is put the names together in an artistic way and actually make a mural right here of Jesus. Can you see that? How it's, it's in his face, right? It's pretty cool. And so I was, uh, I didn't know what to write. It was actually like a lot of pressure. I'm like, what do I write? What do I write? What do I write? I ended up writing because I was just reflecting on a hymn that I was really uh, loving. I wrote down, ineffably sublime. And uh, <laughs> I, I later on went to go look at the thing real closely. I didn't see my, my word on there. And I was like, dang it, you know, not, didn't quite make the cut. As I was looking at all of the names on here, I mean, the names on there, beautiful, uh, love, uh, he, he is our, our God, he's our redeemer, our protector, right? There's all of these names that are true of Jesus written on here and to, to make this mosaic that is beautiful. But it occurred to me as I kept looking at this further and further, I didn't see the word judge. Jesus the judge or wrathful or um, destroyer of sin. I didn't see those names on there. And it was around this time as I looked at that and I was curious about that, I was reading a book that I highly recommend to you. It has a great title. It's called Tasty Jesus, okay? <laughs> and this book, written by a guy with an equally incredible name, his name's Brian Hurlbutt, right? And you can imagine what that was like at school, right? Hey, Brian, barf bum. This book, <laughs> this book is about all the different Jesus that exist in pop culture in America, and he had different names for each of them, right? One of them was uh, the no-carb Jesus, which was the Jesus of fundamentalism. There was the cream puff Jesus, the Jesus of liberalism. And then there was the smorgasbord Jesus, which was uh, the Jesus of, of um, postmodernism. And the idea behind this Jesus is that you go to the buffet or the smorgasbord buffet, and you just pick and choose what you want. And it occurred to me, how often do we do that very same thing when we think about the attributes of Jesus? Do we, do we think about the judge, Jesus? Because if we are true to the scriptures, he's in here as the judge. And so tonight, my goal, I'm not, I'm not preaching from one particular passage. Typically, we try and do that. We work through one text. I'm, we're just gonna go on a long journey here uh, of looking at all many different places where Jesus is the judge. And my big idea tonight is when Jesus returns, he will judge the living and the dead. But they also, we need this judge. This is found all over the place. He's gonna judge the living and the dead, but we also need this judge. It's so my goal tonight is we're gonna walk through that 
and take a look. And I have a bunch of different premises, okay? And I'm gonna frame this as if it's like a movie plot. So, number one, the plot winding up. As we think about Jesus the judge, this is my question. If there's no judge, what hope is there for the world so filled with tyranny and injustice? If there's no judge, what hope is there for a world with so much tyranny and injustice? And when I talk about tyranny and injustice, many, many things can come to mind in that. You don't have to look too far to see how messed up our world is. You don't have to watch the news too long to see how bad things have become. Let me give you a few things that have really impacted me and I've thought about over the last number of years, stories that have impacted me. Maybe you remember Brock Turner, the name of a student at Stanford University who was on the water polo team. He was leaving a party one evening, and as he was leaving this party, he noticed a girl who was passed out behind a dumpster, and he proceeded to go sexually assault this girl who was behind the dumpster until two guys found him, uh, and he tried to escape. They chased him down, tackled him, and he was arrested. And so he went to trial, he went to court for this, and the, uh, his defense were saying, we don't, you know, he was pleading not guilty to this. And they're saying, no, clearly you're guilty. And the, and the judgment that was gonna be set upon him was 14 years in prison. And the defense lawyers were saying, no, 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 he can't serve 14 years, give him six years. The judge rules, you're gonna go to prison for six months. He served three. And everyone cried in injustice. What just happened? They felt like there was no justice that was had here. There was an injustice. What are we supposed to do with this world where there's so much tyranny and injustice? Or maybe you're, you're familiar with human trafficking that happens around the world. I read a statistic today from the, uh, the, the International Labor Organization, they estimate that 24.9 million people right now are, are involved in human trafficking, with 50% of them being in sex slavery. Think about those numbers for a second. People who do not have a voice and who are slaves. If there's no judge, what do we do about this world with so much tyranny and injustice. What hope is there for a world with so much tyranny and injustice? Or maybe you know the name Adam Lanza, who on December 14th, 2012, went to Sandy Hook Elementary, killed 20 children and six teachers, and then proceeded to take his own life so as to not be caught by the police and to escape any justice that happened. Right? He would escape the justice here that was happening in our uh, current justice system. He, he, he got away. So in a world filled with so much tyranny and injustice, what hope is there for the world? Lanza wrote online, he said, I incessantly have nothing other than scorn for humanity. Lanza wrote in one undated message to a fellow gamer, I've been desperate to feel anything positive for someone my entire life. And then also recovered from Lanza's computer 
was a spreadsheet producing, or was produced between 2006 to 2010, which contained complex details about over 400 mass killings dating from 1786. Rather than organizing the incidents in alphabetical order or chronological order, Lanza's spreadsheet was sorted according to the number of victims. What hope is there for a world so filled with tyranny and injustice? And look, we hear these types of stories, and every one of us groans. Because we know that there's tyranny and injustice that has gone not dealt with. Romans 8, 22 reads, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth up to this present time. And friends, I feel that. I feel that the groans of, of, this, of this pain. Our world isn't as it should be. I know you feel it too. Miroslav Volf has an interesting take on this. In interacting with skeptics who would say, you know, the solution to this is to get rid of religion because every war happens because of religion. So we get rid of religion. We can actually create this utopia based on humanity. We can lift ourselves up. We can actually make something positive for the first time ever in humanity. And, and Wolf responds like this. He says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of a thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. What is Wolf saying? He's saying in all of this, if I don't believe that there's actually a judge at the end of all of this who's gonna make things right, the only solution for me not to, that, that's the only thing holding me back from trying to take justice into my own hands and becoming a violent person myself. Because it's easy for us to sit back in places uh, where we have uh, very much a privileged position where there is a good justice system. The rest of the world doesn't have that. There's places where they do not have that. And what I love about Christianity is we have a judge. We have this judge. John 5, reads this. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. That's Jesus saying that about himself. Romans 2, 16. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Think about that. Jesus is gonna judge all things that are known and all things that are unknown. 
the secrets that have been kept, the lies that have been told. Jesus is gonna judge those. You can't escape it. Or maybe you're familiar with the story of, of Stephen the martyr in the Bible. He's the first person to die in the book of Acts as a martyr, the first Christian martyr. He's dragged to the religious elites where they say, we, we want you to stop preaching this Jesus Christ. And he says, oh, I'm gonna preach Jesus Christ. And he delivers this massive sermon where he goes through the Old Testament and he's showing how you guys haven't lived up to any of this. And he begins to absolutely cook them. He's, he's roasting them. And he gets to this point where they're mad, right? All the Sanhedrin are just ready to lose it. Acts 7:54 reads, when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. Right? <laughs> but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of, of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And if you know the story, they, the Sanhedrin, all the elites lose their minds. It's, they just go, ah! they, they go crazy. They grab him, they take him outside the city, and they begin to throw rocks at him, stoning him, and placing their cloaks at the foot of a man named Saul, who would later become Paul. That's one of the first stories. Go read it. It's super fascinating. What makes this so controversial? Why did they lose their minds right at the end of this? What, what Stephen says is I see Jesus Christ, the man that I'm proclaiming that you're trying to destroy, sitting at the right hand of God in this authority seat. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 he's not sitting. He's standing as if in a posture of casting judgment on you right now. And Stephen dies for that. But perhaps the most incredible and what gets me fired up when I read this about Jesus coming as the judge comes in Revelation 19. The white rider. It reads, I saw heaven standing up. John's writing this. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns and he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. And he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Why is his robe dipped in blood? It's the blood of his enemies that he's just slaughtered. The blood of the people he's just destroyed and judged. His, he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. His name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I love this picture. Why do I love this picture? Because it says there's a moment coming when the king's gonna return and make everything right again. He's returning to judge the living and the dead rightly as it should be. I remember a few, <clears throat> during my internship year, we did the Lord of the Rings marathon. Who was there? I've brought this up before. We're not doing it again. Okay, never again. I am still scarred from that. The smell of West Court has still scarred me after 10 hours of Frodo. 
But there's that scene in Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, if you've seen it, where they're at Helm's Deep and all hope is lost and they ride out to just certain death in this, in this last glory. And then who shows up on the mountain? The white rider, Gandalf comes and he comes riding down the hill with the army. And it's just this picture, right? And you watch this and, and for me, tears well up in my eyes as the sun comes over the mountain and blinds all of the, the, the orcs and the urukai that are fighting there and they just come down and, and, and start killing everyone. I, I talked to our uh, children's pastor at one point because I was teaching a class to the kids and I said, can I show this? Can I show this, uh, this clip? And she's like, yeah, that's good enough. And so I showed, I showed this violence. There's definitely a scene where you see a sword, you see someone's head come off. But I'm like, those are the bad guys and that's Jesus coming down. And they loved it. God bless Tolkien, you know, J.R. But I love this because it means justice is on the way right? That's a picture. Gandalf coming down the hill, justice is on the way. Evil's going to be done away with. And finally, things are going to be made right. And we crave this, don't we? We want this so bad. This means that everything in the world will be made right. But that is a problem as well as a solution. What do I mean? If there's no judge, what hope is there for the world so filled with tyranny and injustice? But if there is a judge... An ultimate judge, what hope is there for us? There is a judge who's gonna judge every little single thing, your thoughts, your secrets. What hope is there for us? 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in body, whether good or bad. And we like to think that we're good people. But when we stand before that judge, are we going to be able to actually withstand that? Really? Like, I've done pretty well. I've lived a good life. Have you? Compared to the standard of God? How's your life going for you? Do you know the story? And maybe you remember the one in the Bible where um, all these guys want to come and, and throw stones at, at, at this woman? And uh, Jesus basically says, you who has no sin, cast the first stone. And no one, fire, no one throws a rock, right? Not one, not one stone is thrown. Because everyone realizes, yeah, I got sin. Every single person like that. Or maybe you remember the story of Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis, where they rebel against God. And because of their rebellion against God, there's a curse placed on the earth. And now we live under this curse. And now we, in turn, are in rebellion against God. Humanity is in a rebellion against God. And it's only by the grace of Christ that we've been brought to him and now we can follow him and, 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 and do our best. But even then, how often do we kind of stray a little bit and look a little bit? How are we going to do in front of that judgment seat? Why, why is it that we don't like the judgment of, of Jesus? Why is it that we don't want to include him on our murals? Because I think it's because deep down we know that we can't live up to that standard and we know what's coming. So I'd rather not think about it because the weight of thinking about it, it crushes me. It crushes me. I can't live up to that. I'm terrified about that standard, about going before that judge. Who can do it? If, you, if there's this standard, 
Is there anyone who's been able to? No one has, has been able to do that. Well, there was one person. Jesus will be the final one who will execute the final judgment of the Father. But we can look boldly at his face because Jesus also becomes the one who was judged for us. Do you see that? We have the plot building. We have the crisis moment, right? The, the, the plot is getting thicker where, oh no, we're gonna be the ones judged. Plot resolves. Jesus is the one who takes our judgment. The judge becomes the judged. When that, when that clicked for me, I tell you what, it brought a smile to my face as I sat there thinking, oh my goodness. And I said that to Freddie, and he's like, that'll preach, you know. <laughs> the judge begin the judge, oh, that'll preach. <laughs> Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, you see, just... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, while someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in rebellion against him, Christ dies for us. The judge dies for us. The judge takes judgment upon himself for us. There's a play that debuted in Berlin in 1945 called The Sign of Jonah. It was written by a man named Gunter Rutenborn. And the play, essentially, it was written, and, and the whole premise of the play was a town or it was a city coming to grips with the fact that the Holocaust had just happened. And it was put on by a university. And so as people attended the play, the actors would come out on stage, and as the actors began to meet with one another, different characters. There was uh, a lady who was a seamstress, right? She, uh, she worked making clothing. There was a police officer. And people would, obviously, in the wake of the Holocaust, they'd be going around and saying, did you know about the Holocaust? To the police officer, and he would say, no, I didn't know about the Holocaust at all. To the seamstress, did you know about the Holocaust? No. And the, the actors in the play got really into it, and they would go down and be walking through the crowd. Think about this in 1945 in Berlin. Did you know about it? Did you know about it? And they would actually plant people in the audience who'd be yelling back. Yeah, we knew, we didn't know about it. We didn't know. Did you know about it? Did you know about it? And so as the play goes on, one by one, each one of the characters begins to say, yeah, actually, we knew about it. The police officer, I was involved in actually rounding up the Jews and, uh, and sending them off. And the seamstress said, yeah, I knew about it. I was creating uniforms for the soldiers. And so everyone in the town actually ends up coming and say, yeah, we all knew about this Holocaust that happened. But how are we all gonna be, like, if we're gonna go to trial, we can't all be guilty for this. This has to be, there has to be someone greater that, that goes on trial for us. I know, let's put God on trial. And so the whole rest of the play is them putting God on trial. And they finally have this judge who says, you know what, we're gonna put God on trial. And they find God guilty of the crimes of the Holocaust. And so what do they... What do they charge God with? They say, what's, what's the punishment gonna be? Because we want you to know what this feels like and so what they do. They say, okay, here's, here's what's gonna happen, God. 
you're gonna know what it's like to, to be a Jew. You're gonna have to live and be scorned and, and hated by people. People are gonna misunderstand you. They're gonna malign you. You're gonna walk all the days of your life with people trying to kill you, speaking against you, and never positively um, caring for you. You're gonna be a social outcast, so you know what that's like. And then you're gonna die the most painful death that is possible. So it's just so you know how it feels. Just so you know what it feels to be one of those Jews. And everyone in the audience. And, and so they would say this, and, and they said, that's the final verdict. And they, they would slam, the, like the judge's pallet went down, and the whole stage went black. And it just let people think there for a little bit. You can see the connections there, right? Gunter Rutenborn was actually a Lutheran pastor who was trying to pastor during the war, World War II. And, and his take on this is Jesus is actually, he's done those things for you and for me and for anyone who would call upon his name. The judge becomes the judged. Only in Christ there is hope. There's an incredible passage of scripture in Luke 4. Since we're just looking at so many different texts in the Bible, what's one more, right? Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Jesus goes to the synagogue where he grew up, okay? It's a place where he, he's grown up. It's kind of like the, the local church, right? The local synagogue this is a community center. It's where they talk about religious things. And at one point, when Jesus went to Nazareth, he stood up and he reads this scroll that is from the prophet Isaiah. He picks up this scroll and he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the, Lord, the, the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began saying to them, today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying, all of these things, proclaiming to the prisoners, sight for the blind, setting the press free, these have been fulfilled today in your midst. He's saying, the one in Isaiah that's being talked about, that's me. You know what's really unique about this passage? If you go to Isaiah 63, 61 rather, <laughs> 61, Isaiah 61, Kendra. If you go there to Isaiah 61, do you, know what, do you know what the next line is that Jesus doesn't include, right? He's gonna set the captive free. He's gonna, he's gonna proclaim to the poor the next line. And he's gonna enact the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance. Why doesn't Jesus include that in this moment? Why does he include it? He just stops. He just cuts it short. Why does he include that? It's because Jesus came not to enact vengeance upon us, but came to, to bring people to him. Jesus comes twice. This first time, he's coming to bring the captives to him. Those who were ravaged by sin, he comes to bring them to him, to reconcile his people to him, dying on a cross for us. And he ascends again, but he will come again, make no mistake. 
And when he does, he will judge the living and the dead. That comes later. Okay, so here's the last one. The plot finally winding down. Okay, last five minutes. Or if it's Lord of the Rings, there's like 10 of these at the end. (laughs) Our fear of judgment and shame of his judgment is a failure to recognize what he did on the cross. Only when we remember what Jesus came to do here on earth the first time will we be able to withstand the final judgment. Will we be able to to withstand when he comes the second time? Look, I, I have just two applications for us in this. The first one is this. If someone comes up to you and says, as you're talking to them about Jesus and say, well, I don't like this, this judgment that's gonna happen. Like, I don't think, I don't believe in a God who, who would actually judge, judge me. I don't wanna believe in that. Like, you shouldn't be judging me. Just don't judge anyone. Like, leave that out of it. I'm all good with the lovey Jesus and the, 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 the goodness and him healing people and being kind. That's great. I'm all for that. What do you say to this kind of person? I think you say to them, what did it cost your God to love you? What did it cost your God to love you? Where was the pain? Where was the agony? Where were the nails? Where, where, was, where were the thorns? What did it cost your God to love you? It's ironic, right? The irony is, in an attempt to make your God more loving, you've actually made him less loving because he wasn't willing to actually die for you. Friends, we we believe in a God who was so loving that he actually went and died for us. God himself, who went and died for you. The pain, the nails, the thorns, he did that for us. He's a loving God. He loves us. If he doesn't judge, if he doesn't provide justice, if God doesn't judge, he doesn't really love you. It cost him his son, and he watched his son die. You gotta believe he loves you. My second implication is this, because it's easy for us to, 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 to forget this, right? Sometimes the second implication is we often forget about this, and we can worry about this coming judgment. We, we can often, we can lie our head on the pillow at night and just worry about, oh my goodness, Jesus is coming, and he's gonna judge the living and dead. And what do I do with that? Am I right with God? Because right now, I don't feel that. I don't feel like I'm right with God right now. I don't know. I haven't felt this in a long time. Can I just remind you for a second? You need to remember the promises of Jesus. You might not feel that in this moment. You need to remember the promises of Jesus. We forget his promises. We forget Philippians 1, 6, when it says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So even in the moment where you feel scared about maybe this coming judgment, you don't know where where God is in your life, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Has, Has God kept his promises in the Bible? Yes. Do you have any reason not to trust Jesus to keep his promises here? No. So what's the problem? He's been faithful. He, he, he's done this the whole time. And more than that, he's, he's made an objective legal statement about you saying that you are justified before him. You are now made righteous. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This is declared by the Father and given through the Son. And we can forget that. One of the ways that we actually remember this 
is through communion. All of this points us to the table as actually we remember the fact that the judge became judge for us. And so in a moment, we're actually gonna take communion. And I was encouraged uh, at the Apologetics Canada conference. Andrew Bennett was one of the speakers here. And the first thing I heard him say, he, he looked at the crowd and said, you know, it's important as we think about all these religions and all of these discussions to, to recognize that when we think of Christianity, we're not following a religion or, or a philosophy. We're following the way. Christianity is the way. Jesus is the way, and he's the way back to the Father. Yes, he's the judge who will come and judge injustice and tyranny, but he's made a way that you can come and you can withstand that judgment. Do you know this judge? Because he wants to know you. And so tonight, we're also gonna have people on the sides praying. And if you don't know that judge, and this is, this is stirring up something inside of you, come talk to one of us. We'd love to talk to you about that. Let me pray for you. Father, this text is uh, it's unique because as we've seen throughout all the scriptures here, there is so much going on about you being the final judge. And often we can just look over these verses and, and not think much about them. But as we slow down and, and try and think about them, uh, judgment's coming. And Lord, in, in, a, in a way that just also seems paradoxical, this judgment is good because all the wrongs of the world will be made right. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful that the judge himself took judgment upon himself for our sake so that we could be called children of God. So Lord, we love you. And would our worship now as we sing, as we take communion, as we pray for one another, would it reflect the thankfulness of that? And would we revere you, the final judge that's gonna be um, over us, but we also worship you and celebrate you and love you because you've made a way. Be with us now. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.